What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? you, you, you. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, we made it to Friday. I think that's worth celebrating. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, something that's uh, kind of rolling around in your head there and you really like, would like to get that question answered, we are here to help you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, you will want to dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. Word to the wise here because it's Friday. Phone lines tend to fill up rather quickly and rather early on Fridays. So you may want to call right now while there's still an open board here. 833-288-EWTN. Of course, you can always send us an email 24-7. The address for that ctc at ewtn.com. Let's see here. We've got uh, Charles Beery as our producer, Matt Kabinsky uh, doing the phone screening. Ace McKay is on social media today. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Ace will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and uh, we will take it from there. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Got here just in time today. Uh, I got here just in time. I mean, like a minute away. That's I, I, that's pretty close. Skin of my teeth. Yep. I'm delighted that you're here on time, and uh, most of all, that you're here. I'm also delighted to be here. Love be- being here. Weekend uh, plans for you? Uh, you know, same old, same old. Chasing, chasing around grandchildren, cooking, cleaning, cutting grass. You know, the drill. The summer, the, the dog days of summer. Well, I might get to walk the dog. Oh, there you go. So uh, at the end of the show yesterday, Thursday, you may have noticed that there were three questions that we received on social media that we could not get to. And I mentioned that we're going to tackle those at the top of the show today. And that's exactly what we're going to do. This one is from Rose, who was listening yesterday on YouTube. Rose says, I still don't know how to defend the church to my husband and my in-laws regarding how the church is handling abusive priests. Oh, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, <clears throat> first of all, I, I think you ought to be completely honest about the horror show that has taken place with the abuse of children by clerics in the Catholic Church and not shy away, not try to explain it away, not try to relativize it. Just go, it's absolutely terrible and there's no excuse for it, period. Right? That we need to be honest about yep. that. Um now, uh, in terms of what the Church has done, I work for the Church. I work in the administration of a Catholic diocese. And, uh, and I, at one time, part of my job is no longer my job, but at one time I had uh, the supervision of the office that handles youth protection within the diocese. So I, I, I know, like, I have firsthand knowledge of this. And, uh, and I can tell you that the regime is very thorough, and we are constantly... Uh, alert to the question of, okay, who's with the kids, who has the, the, the requisite background checks, and, uh, you know, who's been training, and who's watching the watchers, and, I mean, we're hyper alert to that, and as long as I've been in the business, 
the the problems that you tend to see in my experience in the church today with this issue really are not coming from clerics. I'm not saying there aren't some bad apples left. We've gotten a lot of the bad apples out. Um, but uh, the priests themselves are just absolutely hyper aware of this issue. It's impossible for them not to be. I mean, you, you hear horror stories about priests walking down the street being assaulted just for wearing clerics. I mean, like the, the, the public image of the priest as the predator is so well established in popular media. You think priests don't know that that's how people think when they look at them? Of course they are. They're hyper aware of this issue. And, uh, you know, I mean, I had a, a friend who was a, a, a hundred-year-old invalid priest. I mean, I mean, a blind invalid priest at 100 years old, and uh, uh, and he would often receive visitors at his at his residence, and um, uh, you know, one of my sons wanted to go to confession to him one time, the the blind invalid 100 year old priest, and he's like, oh, I don't know if I can receive a young person in my in my rooms, you know, that might give the appearance <laughs> of impropriety, and I'm like. Man, you're a hundred years old, blind and infirm. You can't get off the couch. You know, like <laughs> who's going to think something bad happened? You know, yeah. there's a there's a serious awareness of this issue among the clergy. Sure. And um and uh, uh and so the issues now, in my experience, uh, are more uh, likely to take place among among lay people. And and most of what you see, it's not it's not uh, straight up uh, uh, sex abuse or child abuse. It would be you know somebody uses bad judgment about. Hey, well, was there a sh- was there somebody else in the car, you know, with that teenager and that chaperone? Oh no, you know, Bobby went off with, uh, you know, Mr. Smith. Just the two. No, no, can't have that. Can't have that. Mr. Smith should know better. You know, those are the kind of issues. Uh, just boundary violations of mm. poor judgment rather than abuse. And there's 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 such an awareness of this issue, constantly. Now, if a priest were accused of some kind of uh, mistreatment or impropriety, the the policy is. Uh, shoot first and ask questions later, right? Mm, take, yeah. They get taken out of ministry. Uh, they get taken out of the parish. I mean, it's really not the presumption of innocence at all. I mean, the priest is almost presumed guilty rather than innocent until mm. the thing is adjudicated. Mm-hmm. And uh, which, you know, I mean, there's questions about the justice of that regime because somebody could have their reputation in life destroyed just by the merest whiff or hint of an allegation that is baseless, but that's the that's the degree to which the church is hyper vigilant about this right now. Could be kind of uh, erring on the side of, of, of absolutely. And so you you know you do keep hearing of new allegations, but typically these are old events that are being brought to light today. It's a, it's a sort of a trickle of in, of revelation that takes place you know year after year, but they're not every one of those doesn't correspond to a new episode of abuse. Well, that's certainly good to know. And, uh, Rose, thank you so much uh, for your question via YouTube, uh, which uh, we received yesterday. We're going to get to the other two that we received late in the hour, uh, but we're going to do that right after the break. We'll be hearing from Chike, who was uh, checking in yesterday on Facebook, also Jay on YouTube. So we'll tackle those, and then we will get to the phones, I promise. So on the phones, we've already got Amy, a first-time caller driving through Michigan, also Joe in Kennewick, Washington. Going to get to both of those right after these two uh, social media questions. So lots more coming up here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Lines are open for you right now. Better get that line quickly at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986, the Friday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. 
call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN Radio. We have three lines, either a screen, it looks like they're all screened here, and then the three lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you've got a question for Dr. David Andrews, 833-288-3986. Hey, let me tell you about a new book now available from EWTN Publishing, especially if you have littles in the house or maybe uh, grandkids. Good Night Jesus. It's a children's bedtime story by Kate Snyder, illustrated by Anna Morelli. This delightful book helps children reflect on God's blessings in their lives. The captivating images convey the importance of faith and family, friends and fun, and a personal relationship with Jesus. Again, the book Good Night Jesus, a children's bedtime story. It's a new book now available from EWTN Publishing, available at, of course, EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. All right, here's that question now from Chike watching on Facebook yesterday. Glad we could answer this one today. What is this baptism of the Holy Spirit that is so popular among Pentecostals, Dr. Anders, and how can Catholics respond to them? Um, Yeah, thank you. So uh, the language of being baptized by the Holy Spirit comes from from the scriptures. Uh, St. John the Baptist said, uh, after me comes one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Um, in Acts chapter 1, we read, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost. You know, so I mean, this, this, this language is biblical language. The question is, what does it refer to? What experience does it refer to, and how should we understand that in our own lives? So the origins of modern Pentecostalism are in the early 20th century. Uh, Topeka Bible College, Charles Parham, a Wesleyan holiness preacher, uh, came to the conclusion that uh, subsequent to the moment of conversion, and Wesleyans typically think that you start the Christian life through a conversion experience, subsequent to the conversion experience of entering into the Christian life, that there was a a second sort of crisis moment in one's religious uh, biography um, where you receive this gift of power from on high to live an overcoming and victorious Christian life, and that the sign, the inevitable sign of having received that blessing from on high, was the uh, spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, or glossolalia, speaking in unknown languages. And that was, uh, that was Parham's position. And, and uh, 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 William Seymour, who was the, uh, uh, the Pentecostal pastor in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, the great Azusa Street Revival, um, emphasized as well that, uh, and on top of speaking in tongues, you would have all other sorts of manifestations of miracles and healings and uh, ecstatic trances and things like that. So that that's the doctrine. That's the Pentecostal view, and it, it really doesn't emerge fully formed until the 20th century. Uh, what does a Catholic think about all that? Well, within Catholicism, there is something called the charismatic movement, the Catholic charismatic movement, that is an allowable spirituality. It is not a normative spirituality. You do not have to do it, but it's allowable that makes room in Catholic practice for a lot of the behaviors that you would find within Pentecostalism, the speaking in tongues and uh, you know, sort of the, uh, uh, the ecstatic states and the exuberant music and uh, physical healings and things of that sort, makes room for those behaviors, but it doesn't have the same theology, it doesn't regard the origin of those things the way Parham and the Pentecostals would. Because as Catholics, we understand that the gift of the Holy Spirit is something that comes in, first of all, in baptism, 
uniting us to Christ through sanctifying grace. And there is this this sort of, uh, if you want to call it a second blessing, to empower us for witness and ministry, but it comes through the sacrament of confirmation. It doesn't come in this... Uh, in this showy uh, phenomenon of speaking in tongues and the like, um, and, and you wouldn't, you shouldn't conclude, in my judgment as a Catholic, that just because somebody uh, speaks in tongues or alleges prophecies or miracles, uh, that that person necessarily is operating uh, with the gift of the Holy Spirit. There could be also be naturalistic explanations for that that you know wouldn't necessarily mean that individual was an exemplary Christian, right? And and the, the big difference is that for a Catholic, those kinds of things, while allowable, they're not normative. They're not the main stuff of Christian life. And if you engage them in them, it must always be ordered towards charity. Uh, that is the big thing, charity in the virtuous life and the life of reason. And in my experience, modern Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement can sometimes uh, lose touch with, uh, well, with reason a bit. And the, the, the frenetic engagement with uh, or pursuit of uh, of miraculous signs uh, can lead people quickly into superstition if they're not careful. GK, thanks so much for your question via YouTube. And or no, actually, that was from uh, Facebook. We're going to get to Jay on YouTube in just a moment. First, if you're ready, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Amy now. Amy is a first-time caller driving through Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Amy, what's on your mind today? Hey, my, I, um, I, my husband and I are driving back from a funeral that we went to, um, and it was a Catholic funeral, and neither of us are Catholic. And um, at the wake, the night before the service, they did the rosary. They had a reading, um, the sharing of the rosary. Mm-hmm. So our, my question is, I know about the rosary beads. Um, I know the, about the different prayers, but why, why do you have to keep repeating the same prayer over and over again? Like what? Sure, sure. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate the question. So here's here's a a way not to think about it. This is not the right way to think about it, but it's the way the rosary sometimes gets caricatured. We don't think that we need to say you know ten Hail Marys for every decade or fifty Hail Marys per rosary because Mary is deaf. Right. The point in saying it over and over again is not, you know, to make sure we get God's attention or Mary's attention. And if somehow we don't say it enough, then <laughs> then it's not going to take. Right. Mm, yeah. That attitude is superstitious. And it's what Jesus condemns when Christ says, don't pray like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Right. And, and so anybody that takes the rosary that way and thinks, well, I've, I've got to do it this many times or else somebody's not going to hear me. That's that's wrong, and that's the false way to believe, to use the rosary. And all the Catholic spiritual writers who talk about the rosary say, hey, if you're praying the rosary and you suddenly find yourself sort of caught up in the wordless love of God, just put the thing down. I don't care if you're only halfway through the second decade. Just put it down, and you go with that wordless love of God. That's the, that's the ultimate goal. So if you get there quickly, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, I'll say, secondly, that repetitive prayer is an extremely biblical practice. And if you don't believe me, go read Psalm 136. <laughs> 136, you'll find the phrase, his love endures forever, repeated, I think, 26 times in the psalm. It is a litany that is, uh, quite frankly, a bit much, right? <laughs> and so this this idea that, well, you know, should we repeat ourselves in prayer? Well, if, if we're not to do that, then you have to, you have to implicate the Bible, because it, it does it all the time, especially in the Psalms. And so why would you do that? 
well, I might ask the same question. Why would you sing the same refrain in a song over and over again? Hey, I said it once. Yeah, but I like that bit, mm. right? Um, the, one of the points of the rosary is to generate a certain affect, a certain kind of mood, to put oneself in a certain frame of mind. And along with the repetitive prayers comes a series of meditations. And you, you might not know that's what they were doing, but when you pray the rosary, it's very common for someone to announce, and the first glorious mystery is... And then they'll, they'll recount an episode from the life of Christ or from the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so the goal in the rosary is to meditate upon these images from the life of Jesus, um, to invoke our Lord and Our Lady in prayer, and through the act of, of repetition to allow the mind to sort of, and the affections to be taken up into a reflective and meditative state so that ultimately I can pass over into a deeper contemplation of God in a, in a state of, uh, of, of absorption. And so the words are just a kind of vehicle for that. They're not, they don't have any kind of magical efficacy in themselves. Amy, is that helpful for you? Yeah, that's very helpful. I appreciate it. We appreciate you. Thanks so much for your phone call today. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Two lines open at 833 833- 288-3986. All right, as promised, here is Jay's question from YouTube. Uh, this came in yesterday afternoon. Couldn't get to it. We're going to get to it right now. Jay says, if Christians believe God created everything, why do they then have a hard time believing in something simple like a virgin birth, transubstantiation, etc., Trinity, all that? Okay, well, I'll, I'm going to put the Trinity in a completely different category from the virgin birth, Okay. Um, so some of the things that you listed, I don't think, you know, um, um, you know, the count from Sesame Street would say they don't belong together, okay? Um, the, the Trinity is something that Catholics believe to be metaphysically necessary. It can't not have been. I mean, that's of the very essence of God's nature, who's eternal. Uh, the virgin birth, however, could not have been. There's nothing about the virgin birth that necessitate God having done that. God could have saved us in some other way. God could have not saved us at all. God could have refrained from creating anything. The virgin birth is an historical contingency that God planned as the means to redeem the world, but he could have done it differently. It didn't have to happen. So there's no way. you, You can't argue for the necessity of the virgin birth. And as to why, I think, in terms of the difficulty of belief, why would someone find that a harder pill to swallow than, say, the revelation of the Trinity, which I, I do think is the case? Um, well, because most of our experience uh, does not include does not include virgin births, and so there's a normal uh, course of action in the physical world of cause and effect, and that we're very familiar with and that we use to guide our all of our daily decisions and all of our prudent judgments and it doesn't include a world of virgin births so so i mean i think that's where the difficulty would come in for the making the act of faith it's a little bit different with the trinitarian revelation because Mm -hmm. the trinity um though i don't think you can you can't reason to the trinity from human experience the trinity enlightens human experience and cognition um and it speaks to perennial philosophical problems like the problem of the one and the many that so exercised the Platonists and the Neoplatonists. Mm. Um, Bonaventure, in his uh, mind's journey into God, explores the sort of Trinitarian patterns 
within human cognition and nature uh, as so many resonances echoing back to this mm. one fundamental metaphysical fact of the of the of the blessed trinity jay thanks for checking in on youtube back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN joe is in kennewick washington and let's see here uh, joe is listening on sirius xm channel 130 hello joe happy friday what's on your mind today sir oh thank you very much um I have a question on purgatory, and um, I'm familiar with uh, Dr. David's answers on the restitutionary nature of purgatory and the example of uh, of being forgiven for breaking the window but then having to pay restitution still. But are there other things that get taken care of in, in purgatory? For example, my concupiscence. You know, I, I don't want to be walking in heaven always longing for that extra order of chicken wings when I shouldn't. Or say I have a deep-seated prejudice against blonde-haired, blue-eyed Scandinavians. Um, Now, I've never sinned against them. I've never acted on that deep-rooted prejudice of mine. But I've still got it. And I don't think I want to be walking around heaven with that kind of prejudice on my soul either. And so are does the church teach those are also the types of things that would get relieved in purgatory? Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. So that is exactly what the church says, that all who die in God's grace and friendship but are still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to, ch- to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. I just quoted the Catechism, paragraph 1030. So absolutely, it's, it's both penance and purification. Well, there you go. Joe, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate hearing from you in Kennewick, Washington. Forrester is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Forrester says, I was recently discussing natural law with an atheist. Is natural law compatible with atheism? And does belief in natural law as the end of the infinite regress for morality a type of theism? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So as to whether natural law is compatible with theism, uh, uh, compatible with atheism, it it is an historical fact that many atheists have believed in something like natural law. And I'll give you some salient examples. One would be the British Aristotelian philosopher Philippa Foote, her book Natural Goodness. Um, another would be, in a completely different domain, uh, Martin Seligman, former president of the American Psychological Association and progenitor of the positive psychology movement, has a book entitled Authentic Happiness, uh, in which he argues, he says, look, I'm an atheist and a relativist. Uh, however, if, um, if you want to be happy, do these things. And they seem to be human universals, and they would include things like acts of virtue. So even though he's explicitly and avowedly an atheist, he says there is a normative way to live if your goal is happiness. In reasoning that way, Seligman is in good company. He's, of course, maybe unaware of this, but he's he's basically taking an Aristotelian point of view. So Aristotle, (laughs) uh, while not an atheist in the modern sense of the term, was certainly not a Christian theist. Um, His concept of God was a, a good bit more mechanical. Um, But his Nicomachean Ethics, which is really the first great treatise on ethics in the Western canon, um, does not seem to have a lot of room in it for God. Uh, It doesn't necessarily exclude God. God is kind of irrelevant to the hypothesis. Um, Someone who is very antagonistic to religion, Sam Harris, noted atheist philosopher, uh, has a book called The Moral Landscape, where he tries to arrive at 
what I would consider to be basic natural law principles about human morality from, uh, from facts about the natural world. That sounds like natural law to me. Um, so uh, there are a lot of atheists that have taken that view as to whether or not, um, you know, at, at bedrock that amounts to a kind of theism. I'm going to run out of time to discuss that issue. I, I think it needs a bit more nuance than I can do here. So why don't we uh, pick that up on the other we side of the pick break? Pick up on the other side, yeah. We'll do that. We'll also talk with Betsy in Dearborn, Michigan, Nick in Toledo. Lots more straight ahead on Call to Communion. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. A couple of phone lines are open right now. If you call right now, then hopefully we'll get you on today's program, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. So before the break, uh, we were tackling this question from uh, Forrester on YouTube who, uh, I'll just recount the whole thing. I was recently discussing natural law with an atheist. Is natural law compatible with atheism? You answered that. As as the end of the infinite regress for morality, uh, is that a type of theism? (coughs) Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, before the break, I said there are a lot of atheists who have held doctrines that look pretty darn close to natural law to me. They're reasoning to more absolute moral principles yeah. from the nature of things. And that's that's more or less how I understand natural law. Um, I think if you ask the question, does that amount to a kind of theism, uh, Sam Harris would have fighting words for you. I mean, he, would, <laughs> he would disavow that conclusion right away. Um, and so clearly it doesn't lead to a kind of explicit theism. That's obvious. Uh, but there might you might be able to salvage a kind of hypothesis of an implicit theism within within natural law reasoning if you if you looked at it like this and this is kind of a platonic way of reasoning uh, that is to say in in line with uh, with the philosopher plato that in our acts of knowing and loving there seems to be implied uh, a kind of uh, conception of 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 the one the true and the good, the, what you call the, the, the transcendental properties of being. Uh, if, uh, reality, wherever you look, has ha, you can predicate these things of anything that is of, and of all being itself. Somehow or another it's one, somehow or another it's true, it is, it's, and somehow or another it's good, because our, our acts of choosing seem to presuppose that there's a hierarchy of values sort of built into the fabric of reality. And at the top of that hierarchy, the, Neopla- the Neoplatonic philosophers would put the concept of the one, like the, the, the ultimate source of the intelligibility of the universe that is not itself a part of the universe um, and is uh, shrouded and lost in this, uh, in this mist of ineffability that we can only approach uh, apophatically. That is by way of negation. Well, it's not a dog and it's not a cat and it's not a house plant and it's not a Catholic radio host, but somehow another is above and beyond all these things. And beyond that, we can't really say. If we start predicating about it, it stops being one. It starts yeah. being two things. It starts being an object with properties. And then it's obviously it's complex and it's no longer a unitary thing. Now, within the Catholic theological tradition, that very hazy, ineffable, apophatic notion of the one that we draw, derive from Neoplatonism is the definition of God. And so there's a perfect identity in, in Catholic philosophical theology between this Neoplatonic notion of the transcendentals and the person and the being of God. And so um, while, uh, and this comes out really well in a philosopher like Thomas Nagel, who is an avowed atheist, uh, but he seems like really not to like atheistic materialism 
and and approaches something like Platonism or Panpsychism by way of alternative. Um, there, he seems to want there to be a metaphysical structure to reality um, that terminates in some kind of first principle. Um, would ab- adamantly deny that that's God, but uh, but the whole force of his thinking and all of his affectivity seems to point in that direction. Um, is that person a theist or not? Well, by one man's definition, absolutely not. Right? Um, you know, fundamentalists and atheists alike would deny that that's God. Mm-hmm. From the point of view of uh, Catholic philosophical theology, I'm not so sure. Okay, fascinating. Appreciate that, Forrester. Thank you so much uh, for your question via YouTube this afternoon. Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. You hear them, uh, their listeners calling into this program and others all the time. St. Gabriel Radio in Columbus, Ohio and Portsmouth, Ohio, celebrating their 18th year with us. Congratulations to Bill Messerly and his great team there at St. Gabriel Radio from all of us here at EWTN. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Betsy is listening in Dearborn, Michigan on the great Ave Maria Radio. Hey, Betsy, what's on your mind today? Hi, um, my dad is in hospice right now, and he, um, I'm trying to wrap my head around this redemptive suffering where you take his suffering and our pain and you attach it to Christ for the salvation of mankind. I just, I don't comprehend, and perhaps. I am misunderstanding, so I'd like for you to clarify that, and also give me, if you would, a prayer that maybe uh, you you used with your dad, if you would, please. Yeah, thank you so much, Betsy. Dear Betsy, I, I am so sorry. I am so sorry, and I understand only too well what you're experiencing. Um, it, it's just, you, you, don't have, you, you don't have words to explain how, how bad it hurts to lose someone you love with all your heart. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I've, I've been there, and I know what you're going through, and I'm so, so sorry. And, uh, you know, the, the business with redemptive suffering is real, but it doesn't take away the suffering, yeah. right? It just it lends a kind of purpose to it, a kind of intelligibility, and nothing can take away that pain like right now. And I'm, I'm so profoundly sorry. The basic idea of redemptive suffering is that when Jesus did it, you asked for a prayer. There's no prayer better than that of Christ. You said, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Or the words of the Blessed Virgin Mary, be it done to me according to thy word. Um, so when suffering comes our way and we are able to, if not bear it, at least accept that it comes from the hand of a good God, and that God has our best interest and our loved one's best interest at heart, that resignation to the divine will is itself a meritorious action. Just like giving food or clothing to the poor is a meritorious action, resigning ourselves to the will of God when it's hard is a meritorious action, and the merit of our resignation can avail for our salvation or the good of the whole world. That's the logic of it. And, you know, St. Paul says, I fill up in my own flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. That's, that's the way we do it. We do it like Paul. We do it like Christ. We do it like Mary. We, we say, yes, Lord, even though it hurts, even though I don't understand, 
and that resignation is is a gift. It's meritorious. And we when we make our offerings, you know, we, we you know, Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day, together with your most sacred heart. You know, the desires of your most sacred heart, and keep it. But you know, with the holy sacrifice of the Mass offered throughout the world, make that kind of morning offering. We do that every day if you pray the morning offering. We offer your sufferings and your prayers and your works alongside those of Christ and the sacrifice of the Mass for the redemption of the world. That's that's how it's done. Um, but it doesn't take the pain away. It just it just sort of gives it purpose. Betsy, uh, you and your dad are in our prayers. Uh, thank you so much for calling, and we hope that's helpful for you in some way. It's called Communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Nick, a first-time caller from Toledo, listening on the great Annunciation Radio. Nick, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. I was just wondering um, if you had any advice on what the uh, best response to the atheistic uh, objection to evil is. You know, I've gone through conversations um, where I've quoted saints and, and their philosophical arguments against it um, and tried to expand from there. I just didn't know what the most concise uh, and, uh, you know, easiest yeah, to explain sure. It Thanks. I appreciate the question. So philosophically, logically, the answer is that God permits evil to bring out of it a greater good. I mean, that's the philosophical answer. Um, and it's really, I think it's kind of unassailable, but logically, just we have to acknowledge that we don't see the greater good. Doesn't mean there isn't one. We just don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, now you know the atheist's retort is going to be, well, you know, I I don't think that there could be a greater good that would justify this level of suffering. That's an assertion. Mm-hmm. That's an assertion. Is everybody as much a faith assertion as the Christian's assertion that there is an intelligible reason? Um, and so we're kind of locked in uh, in this, you know, battle of unverifiable assertions based on faith. Mm. Um, you know, his is based on a moral intuition and ours is based on divine revelation, but that's that's where you have it. Now, from a pastoral point of view, you know, God has a reason can be very comforting up to a certain point. But as the as the index of suffering goes up and up and up and up and up in a person's life, the God has a reason answer begins to wear hollow and thin after a while. And in my experience, uh, it can very quickly erode one's image of God. And sometimes that's a good thing. Um, if one you know, thinks of God in an overly anthropomorphically paternal way, uh, where I have to conceive of God treating me the way I know my own father would treat me in this circumstance, and my dad would not ever step by and let this happen, yet God's letting this happen, then that, that kind of busts that image of God. And so I have to sort of expand my God concept to incorporate the reality of this unbelievable pain. Um, and, uh, and I think the best way to help someone do that and help them sort of reconfigure their view of God is to be that loving presence of God to that individual. And so they stop looking for God's mercy in the circumstances of their life and start experiencing it in the persons of his saints. Um, that's really hard to do. It's hard for the one suffering, and it's hard for the one who's being that loving presence. But I really think, pastorally, that's the right approach. 
Nick, thank you so much uh, for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. Call to communion here on EWTN in about 20 minutes or so on most of these EWTN stations. Be sure to join us for EWTN's Open Line Friday. Today with Colin Donovan as your host. That'll be at 3 p.m. Eastern, again, on most of these EWTN radio stations. Let's go now to uh, Violet in Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Violet, what's on your mind today? Um, yes, um, I'm just a person that uh, tries to live by her, fa- her, her faith. A friend of mine who is a Quaker, he told me the other day that um, Jesus is not God. The only thing I can come up with is that uh, Jesus said to Philip, the apostle, uh, when he asked him, show was the father, and he said, I've been with you for so long and you don't recognize me or something like that, so I just told him that. But he made me think, just put it that way, I want to have more knowledge and be like more certain that Jesus is that he made me think. Can you help me with that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I appreciate the question. So the, the the strongest biblical case for the divinity of Christ comes, of course, in the Gospel of John, in a number of passages in John. So the opening of John, the prologue of John, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him. Um, and that word becomes incarnate, takes on flesh, and becomes the person of Jesus Christ. So that's a pretty straightforward affirmation of the divinity of the word, the creative power of the word, and his identity with the person Jesus. And then later on in the gospel, Jesus in John chapter 8 says that he existed before Abraham, but he phrases it this way, before Abraham was, I am and uses the exact same language that uh, God used about himself in when he met Moses in the burning bush. And Moses says, what shall I tell the people your name is? And he says, tell them I am, I have sent you. Christ uses that same terminology to refer to himself and identifies, uh, says that he pre-existed as I am uh, before the call of Abraham. So the, the, those around him clearly understood this to be a claim of divinity, and it seems to have been not just any old divinity, but the very same God that called Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt. I mean, that's who Christ is saying he is. Um, uh, of course, John chapter 10, his perfect identity with the Father, I and the Father are one. Uh, and then, as you correctly mentioned, you know, Thomas's affirmation, my Lord and my God, and, and the disciples worshiping him. And you don't worship somebody that's not divine, particularly if you're Jewish. So that's the that's really the strongest case. There are other texts... Uh, uh, Dr. Brant Petrie has a, a wonderful, wonderful little book. I think it's called The Case for Jesus or something like that, uh, which is an extended reflection on the divinity of Christ expressed throughout all four Gospels. Um, uh, uh, book of Philippians chapter 2, we read that Christ was in very nature God, but didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself through the Incarnation. So there are these other texts. And, of course, you can't read these texts apart from the lens of Catholic tradition, right? We don't take the Bible as a standalone document. It's, it's embedded within a larger tr- uh, structure of Catholic tradition. It's where we got the Bible from in the first place, and the Church as its interpreter. And, the, and of course, the uh, unassailable universal tradition of the Church is to read these texts in this way, asserting and believing the divinity of Christ. Violet, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Alejandro. He is calling from Texas, listening on the great Guadalupe radio. Alejandro, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, gentlemen. First of all, I'd just like to say thank you, Dr. David Anders. 
you really helped me in my conversion to being practicing Catholic. I appreciate that. Thank um, you. Of course. My question today is, what does it mean to pray to Mary, and is it proper enough to say that Catholics pray to Mary? Yeah, thank you. Um, it is perfectly appropriate to say that Catholics pray to Mary. We pray to Mary all day, every day, and twice on Sundays. I mean, it's, <laughs> we, are, we are all about praying to Mary and to all the saints. What that means is prayer means asking for stuff. That's what it means. What are we asking Mary for? Her prayers. What do we say in the Hail Mary? Pray for us sinners. Pray for us sinners. It's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a request that she pray for us. We're trying to rely on her more powerful intercession. St. James says that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and not everybody's prayer is righteous. Some people have prayers that are more efficacious than others. God tells the companions of Job, I will not listen to you, but I will listen to Job who prays on your behalf. Mm, yeah. You see? And so there, that, that dynamic exists in Scripture and in the spiritual life, and even in your daily life with your friends. I'm sure you have some friend or grandmother or someone who you think of as a real prayer warrior, and if you're going in to take a test or ask a girl to marry you or whatever you're trying to discern the priesthood, whatever you want to do, you want to make sure that Grandma is praying for you yeah. or whoever that person. You know, I, I don't— not, not, not cousin Ralph. Not him. Grandma. <laughs> I want Grandma praying for me because I know her prayers tend to get answered. That you know, we all have that person in our life. Well, every Catholic has that person in their life, and the persons of the saints, uh, and of course, Mary's at the top of that hierarchy. Appreciate that, uh, Alejandro. Thank you so much for your call. Checking in from uh, uh, Texas. There, we're going to stay in Texas and talk with Joseph, who is in South Texas, also listening on Guadalupe Radio. Joseph, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, thank you for having me online. Uh, great content, guys. I look forward to every day. Um, my my question is pertaining to uh, uh, it, as as we know in the, the Christian era during when Christ was walking on the earth, that the Pharisees and even the uh, the apostles themselves expected the Messiah to establish political reign, uh, but Christ, doing the contrary, uh, didn't live up to their expectations. And uh, considering that the Jews deny Christ, and uh, basically my question is pertaining to who are they waiting for in regards to their Messiah, and how is it not the Antichrist, considering he would fulfill those uh, prophecies or those expectations? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, um, to to begin with, uh, you can't generalize about Jewish people. Right. I mean, uh, I mean, the, the Jewish friends themselves have jokes about, you know, like, you know, you, you have to, uh, three Jews is enough for two synagogues in a fight. You know, I mean, like <laughs> they, they don't all agree on all things all the time by any stretch of the imagination. And there are you know, massive divergences within Judaism. So I'd say some some uh, practicing uh, modern Jews are waiting for nothing. They have have no effective eschatology. Right. Um, some would probably be waiting for something much more generic like justice in the world, you know, construed more or less politically mm. and maybe allied with certain ideological factions, uh, you know, in, the, in political ideology today. Um, others, uh, more orthodox Jews, would be definitely waiting for something much more along the lines of a biblical messiah. And, uh, and even that has taken different permutations. So in Scripture, it seems clear to me that the, the messianic character— uh, is uh, of of Davidic stock and royal to heritage, and you know very much a, a, a you know a political dynasty, 
um, uh, you know, on the model of David, uh, David and Solomonic Empire, and there's some that were probably waiting for that kind of arrival. Um, um, you know, there have been other versions of messianism within Judaism that were much more rabbinic, uh, much more clerical in nature, and more spiritual, uh, and you know, less less intent on. Um, you know, the establishment of a political dynasty kind of thing. So they're different conceptions. Now, uh, I think, uh, personally, the, the, the direction your question is heading about how could they be waiting for someone other than, than the Antichrist, that bothers me enormously, right? Um, that bothers me enormously because it seems to try to ally the Jewish people as a class to some kind of demonic project. Mm. And that is something that the modern Catholic Church has completely repudiated. Uh, we don't think of Jews as minions of Satan or, or, or minions of the Antichrist or anything of the sort. Um, and so that, that line of questioning leaves me like feeling very queasy in the stomach. And you know, even eschatologically as a Catholic, I just think that's misguided because um, let us assume, for the sake of argument, that there will be an historical eschatological antichrist. Let's just assume that for the sake of argument, which I think is like what that, how that's going to play out in history. I have no idea. So I'm not. Let's say this is just an assumption. I, I I think it's totally unreasonable to just just assume that whatever that figure is, that the Jews' expectations are antecedently settled on that character. Right to, to sort of prejudice the thing in advance and go, well, whoever the Antichrist is, well, obviously the Jews are going to aim for that guy. I just think that's there's no basis for that kind of uh, sort of um, uh, anti-Judaic, anti-Semitic apocalypticism. I think the Church has completely repudiated that kind of thinking. Appreciate your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Aiden is a first-time caller uh, in Brownsville, Texas, also listening on Guadalupe Radio. Aiden, what's on your mind today, sir? wondering what are your guys' thoughts on you know, the syncretism that may happen, particularly in Latin American countries? Yeah. Okay, we've yeah. had some uh, phone interference I, I, there. He wants to know what we think about Catholic syncretism in Latin American countries. And syncretism, of course, is a mixing in, uh, of, uh, of elements from different religious traditions. And um, so I can speak to that question, but... I think it may—I hope it doesn't imply that Catholics in America are somehow free of syncretism, or that, you know, Catholics that are not of Hispanic origin are somehow free of syncretism, and, oh, those poor Latin American Catholics, they're all married in syncretism, but we white Anglo-Catholics, we don't have any syncretism. I think that would be very naive, right? And I definitely don't want to take a position that makes me look like I'm somehow— um, condescending to Latin American Catholics. So l let me talk first about, say, like, white Anglo-Southern Catholic syncretism, right? Because that's the social world that I live in, okay. and I see it all the time. Mm. I see it constantly. I live in the, in the heart of Whitesville Catholic Church in America, <laughs> and I see, say, for example, elements of Protestant evangelicalism woven through white Anglo-Southern Catholic consciousness— Politically, eschatologically, hermeneutically, in the Bible, uh, in their ethical and moral philosophy, I, I see I see plenty of evidence of um, of a bleed over from the larger Protestant evangelical world. Worship styles, I mean, spirituality, you name it. Um, do I think that's problematic? 
you betcha I think it's problematic. I think it's very problematic when those syncretistic elements run contrary to some fundamental truth of Catholic dogma or morality or practice. Yeah, I think it's definitely a problem. Um, uh, you know, if you if you sort of skirt to another part of the country, I think you could make similar judgments about white Anglo-Catholicism and syncretistic elements drawn from um, say s certain elements of uh, uh, modern liberal political theory. I'll put it that way. You okay. know that, that bleed through and say like a rejection of the church's teaching on abortion or contraception or marriage or human sexuality uh, definitely has infected. You know, whitey elitist Catholicism in the United <laughs> States, and it's a form of syncretism. Yeah. Okay, so by comparison. Syncretism that I might find in other Catholic countries, particularly historically Catholic countries, may seem mild in comparison. All right. Um, uh, does it exist? Yes. Um, you know, can it take the form of superstition? Yes. Even as it can in white Anglo-North American Catholicism. So does syncretism exist? Yes. Are, are bishops supposed to be alert to it? Yes. Uh, is the gospel always supposed to be enculturated? Yes. Is, is finding that balance between enculturation and syncretism difficult in real time? Yes. And do you risk tearing up the wheat with the chaff when you try to root out practices that seem superstitious from one point of view? Uh, do, you, do you crush the faith of little ones if you do that too aggressively? Yes to all of those things. So that's what I have to say. Aiden, thanks so much for your call. As we're heading out the door here, uh, this is from me on YouTube. Uh, me, am I. Dr. Anders, I recently came across the Crossroads Initiative and Father Ranero Cantalamesa. Are you familiar with the concept of the fruit of the sacrament being tied? So I'm familiar with the concept of sacraments that revive, uh -huh. right? Sacraments that are inert and then revive. And if Father Cantalamesa is using this vocabulary to describe that, which I suspect he is, then it's a standard concept in sacramental theology. There are certain sacraments that can be validly received, but without any fruit, right? Without any efficacy in life, because a person is not properly disposed to receive that fruit. And it's such time that a person comes to faith and penance and charity then the work of that sacrament can revive in the soul. Marriage would be an example. You get married in the state of mortal sin, for example. The grace of the sacrament of marriage is not going to flow into your life until you rectify, rectify that situation. Now, there are some sacraments where the proper disposition renders the thing invalid. So, for example, well, I, I, I'm out of time, but yeah, I know the concept. <laughs> Very good. Dr. David Andrews, have a great weekend. Okay, thanks, Tom. Hope you have a great weekend, too, and we'll see you on Monday here on Call to Communion. Have a great one. God bless.